This is Alyssa Olenek of Little List Fitness. And I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs. We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme. So forget about the black and white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in the messy middle. Hello there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Messy Middle Podcast. Today, we are going to do one of our most highly requested topics, very niche. So for those of you who have never had any interest in going to grad school, you're never going to go to grad school, or you've already been there, done that, and you don't need to be traumatized, today, (laughs) we are going to be talking about all things grad school, if you didn't get the hint yet. So for my friends that are in undergrad, maybe you're in your master's, you're looking at your PhD, you're not really quite sure if you want to go back to school, you're toying with this idea, we basically collected all of the questions that we get from you guys all the time to make this one jam-packed knowledge and advice-filled podcast episode. So I want to keep in mind with everything we're going to talk about today, Kate and I both have very different and unique grad school experiences, but we definitely have, when you look at the grand scheme of things, very similar experiences. So we don't, we can't talk to the experience of people who are coming from um, other countries and dealing with visas or maybe coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds and or anything that falls into any other category that isn't just too white females that grew up middle class. So I want to really, really stress that because I know there's a lot of barriers to graduate school and things that you need to do to get the steps to get there. So I really want to just add that disclaimer today just to make sure that like we are sharing our experience and what we know from just being in the programs, um, being in a couple different programs, going through all this, keeping it very general. But there's tons of resources out there for all these people. And I'm going to plug in here so you guys can at the end of the show, you can click it in the show notes. But there is an entire thing called PhD Balance that gives tons of resources for grad students on balancing grad school. And then honestly, I'm going to advise you all get on Twitter because that's where all the grad school stuff is popping. Um, And so I just really want to add those general disclaimers before we dive into this to keep in mind that our experience isn't necessarily your experience. Our experiences are different from each other's and there's tons of other grad school experiences out there and hopefully as we continue on the podcast we could have other guests come on and talk about that but I wanted to keep that in mind for today and then we're going to dive into all the questions should you go to grad school, funding applications, what it's like to be in the trenches and everything else. So I hope you're ready to jump in. So we definitely want to start with that big ticket question. How do you know if you even should go to graduate school? We get this a lot because I think a lot of people toy with the idea. They like the idea of like getting further education. They think maybe it'll help them in their career or maybe they're like us and they, you know, got sold on science really early and wanted to, you know, do it as a long-term career. But of course, making the decision to go to graduate school isn't easy. So Alyssa, how did you know when you should go and what's your advice to other people experimenting with that question? Yeah, so I think a lot of people think that you're supposed to have this big, special, magical, romantic moment where you like know you want to go to get your to get your master's or your PhD or do science or every field is very different. Obviously, there's a bunch of ways to go to graduate school that isn't just science and research, which is our experience. But I think for me, it just it just happened. Like I, there was no like magic moment where the stars aligned. It just made sense and it happened. And I was an undergrad. I was a junior, and I started getting involved in more research. And at the time, I found out no. One had ever told me. I didn't really have a lot of family members that had advanced education beyond an undergraduate degree and no one in science. So I had no idea about funding or graduate school or like the steps you need to take. I really had no idea. And so I started doing research and the 
advisor I was working for at the time was telling me about how you can get your master's and your PhD fully funded and paid for, and you can do continuing education. And I kind of went into college knowing that I wanted to be an exercise and that kind of niche, but I didn't even know that I could like go all the way. And I loved learning and I really wasn't done learning. And so I think that was the biggest thing for me is that one, I knew I could get it funded. And that was a huge thing for me financially, um, which is something we'll talk about here in a second. But knowing that I could get school funded was huge for me because I toyed around with other types of graduate school, but they didn't feel right. Being a PT just didn't that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't really want to be a PA. I didn't really want patient care, but I wanted to continue to learn. And so I think for me, the decision to go to grad school was twofold. It was one, I wasn't done learning. I still don't feel like I'm done learning, even though I'm at the tail end of my PhD. Like I love um, the quest of knowledge. I love now that I get to create new knowledge, which is really cool and very hard. Um, But also right now, this might change. But at the time, the idea of being a professor, doing research, having a traditional career path is something that well, I wanted to do. And you need to get a PhD um, in order to do that. So I think for me, it's that it wasn't a waste of my time. It was financially, it made sense for me to do. And that it made sense for me um, with whatever my career objectives were long term, as I acknowledge that change. But that's really where that decision came from me. It just made sense. Um, I wasn't done learning. I didn't want to pay for it, but I also knew that I wanted to do bigger things with my career. And so I needed to do more. Yeah. I I had a similar experience where I was like seeking that additional knowledge. I thought I wanted to be a DPT for a little bit. You could, you know, go back to episode three and hear my story. We talked about this at length, but I do think part of it too, was just knowing that you could be good in this area that is really difficult and challenging. So like when other people tell you you have the skills to make it in academia that's really flattering and that really kind of for me like brushed my ego and made academia seem like this really glorious thing that I could have and so for for me I've had a little bit of a different experience when it comes to like my my personal self growth and like discovering what I wanted didn't have to be the you know traditional tenure track academic success story that I, you know, once coveted and thought was this like really prestigious thing to have. So I think too, they're, they're, you know, I'm speaking to the people that would be in a position that I was where I was really enamored with the idea that I was good at this thing. And so I want to emphasize that just being good at school is not the same thing as wanting to continue in academia forever and ever. So I think a lot of the should you go to graduate school question kind of comes to, okay, yeah, is this something that you could be good at, you know, or something that you could succeed at? But is it really what you want? And we're going to talk a lot about different ways to make the experience um, better for you because grad school is hard. But knowing deep down, if you really want this type of uh, work style and lifestyle and career choice, um, even though there's there's still quite a few you can have, I think it's really important to consider because just being good at it isn't enough, you know? I think it's important to add, too, when we talk about this is you can go to grad school for a 100 different things, right? So like I already acknowledged, I could have gone to graduate school for – I could have become a physical therapist or a physician's assistant or gone to med school. Like there's a 100 different tracks I could have gone with my undergraduate degree, and they were all technically on paper grad school, but I would not have been as fulfilled or happy – with those choices like it's acknowledging what is worth what is the thing that you feel like you can do for either two to six years depending on what your track is if you go master's phd your program that you can do 
every day and even on the days you hate it, you still love it and want to show up for it. It's kind of, it's like a, and we'll talk about this with PIs and professors too, when you're picking those, but it's like a very serious relationship. So even on the Mm -hmm. days I hate my work, I still like, I'll catch myself getting excited about it. And I'll be like, you motherfucker, like, how (laughs) dare you excite me? I'm mad at you right now. So it's really a lot of self-reflective work. And I I think the biggest thing I can tell you is that we cannot tell you if you should go to grad school on a podcast. Your advisors can't tell you, your parents can't tell you, your Mm -hmm. family can't tell you. Only you can tell yourself if what you're doing is worth it to you. And it's important to acknowledge. And we'll talk about this because I left my first PhD program. You can leave. Like you can go. And if you find out it's the wrong choice, you can you can leave. Like that's not you're not like a lifelong committed sentence signing a contract to your life away. So it's about really getting to know yourself and knowing what you actually want to do. And the biggest thing for me where Kate realized she didn't want the tenure tra- track thing, my mindset has always been learning is like or all everything adder everything matters and everything adds up has been my approach so i feel like for me every experience and everything i learn more just makes me better or more prepared for any situation and so i went into my phd with the approach that every skill that i would gain in that would be something that i could carry into multiple fields if i even left academia because learning and knowledge and skills training that you get you get a ton of that in graduate school that applies to so many other things so you're not just limited to just the only track that people give you so think more broadly about what you want for your life and see if that that equation or that um, part of the equation that is graduate school fits into that or if it's just a, an extra variable that is not necessary to get the same output, right? Yeah, let's talk about that a little more because you did decide to leave your program. And I've been honest in the fact that I made some decisions in the first year of my PhD, especially that you know, I didn't want to stay in academia forever, but I didn't leave my program. And so let's, I guess, dive in a little bit more of like, okay, when is the decision to leave or to change, right? Because you did change a program. It's not like you left the um, entirety of the PhD. It's just that you swapped um, your programs and your advisors and your schools. So like, I guess for me, I'll just say that I totally agree with the sentiment that like everything that you learn in graduate school can be applied in other areas of your life. And we had Rachel on who talked about transferable skills of PhDs. And I feel like there's so much gained from a PhD experience that for me, I knew it wasn't going to be much longer, um, you know, in my, in my degree, and I could still use my PhD in ways um, that were non-traditional. And so I can feel confident in my decision to stay at school. But there are a lot of cases though, when, um, you know, financially, it's not easy to accept, um, even if you have a graduate stipend, it's not a lot of money. Uh, So some people have to make the decision to leave because maybe their heart's not in it, but it's also a financial decision. And so um, we've been fortunate where, uh, you know, I can, I can make things work on my graduate stipend. It's, it's not been a fun ride. We're going to talk about having other incomes outside of school (laughs) uh, in a moment here, but what is the decision like to, to leave a program and to change it Um, I guess, can you just share your experience a little more? Yeah. So I'm going to rewind back first to my master's choice versus my PhD choice because those were very different. And so for those of you uh, are unaware, I got my master's right out out the bat from finishing um, my undergraduate degree. So I went to Western Kentucky University and I applied to essentially like four or five main master's programs. And for me, the biggest thing was at the time, which I think a lot of you resonate, was that I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to research, but I knew what I 
didn't want to research. So I like really just was, I was open to a couple different things. And my biggest thing for me was funding was a non-negotiable. Like I was a hundred percent getting funded. And so one of the programs I applied to didn't cover tuition, but didn't give you a stipend or vice versa. I can't remember. And so I didn't go there. I was like, no, I'm not. I, I kind of like, I knew, and I definitely like, I didn't grow up with a ton of money, but I did have more security, but it would have been loans on me that I didn't want to take out above and beyond what I already done. And I knew that was a financial decision that I just did not want to do. Um, I was looking at a program in Florida and I knew that that was something that I didn't want to live in Florida. So I was like, no. Um, (laughs) But then I ended up on Western Kentucky because it was a a location, um, a lifestyle, and it had flexibility my first year to just be a general graduate assistant before niching down. I ended up being a research assistant my second year. And that was a good choice for me. And it was funded and it was like just enough money for me to live. Like, I mean, I was pretty broke in my master's, pretty freaking broke. But that was a huge decision for me at the time. And so this is important because in my master's, I had a really, really, really good work environment. I actually think I'm one of the most spoiled people in the world for my experience in my master's. Um, I was very close to like all of my professors. They almost treated me like a daughter at some points. Um, like they were so good to me. I mean, I was young. I was 22 when I started my master's. So I was still kind of a baby, like looking back retrospectively, like I thought I was an adult, but I was not at all. (laughs) Um, and so I had a lot of autonomy though within that. So I was a GA and I worked really hard, but that was by choice. Like I went in and I made the choice to do the things I did. Um, and then if anything, I actually like had a lot of my professors check and balance with me where they'd be like, leave the lab, like go do other things. So there was like, a, it was a very healthy work environment. And then when I joined my research lab that I did my master's in my, my final year, year or so, um, my mentor, she was amazing. She was a little more hands-on than my current mentor, but also like my work style and schedule was very much so when I made myself. I had to show up to certain research testings or schedule my participants and be there, but everything else I did whenever I did, it was 100% up to me. So I could work out when I wanted. I can study when I wanted. I could do everything else I wanted to do on my own time. And I recognize that I thrive in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. Um, I really do work well when I'm in charge of myself, um, if you guys haven't been able to pick up. So I was really, really crippled with imposter syndrome when I was applying to my PhD programs. And I actually had a really hard time finding programs due to funding and research interest. And so for those of you who maybe don't know, I actually started my PhD at the University of Vanderbilt. So I had applied to UGA. I had got a fellowship. I think the one that Kate was on. Yeah. Um, I had gotten, I was accepted and I denied it at the time because my advisor, he was not, he was, uh, there was just some transition stuff and we didn't really know what was going on. So at the time I just really needed a, I was, you know, I just wanted to make a decision on my life without so many things up in the air and I didn't want to wait on other things. And so I ended up saying no to that. And I just went to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt was the best molecular um, physiology program in the country. It made sense. I got in, you know what I mean? It's really hard to get in. It's really hard to even get an interview. And it was just one of those things where it was like everything everyone tells you that you should do and you should want and you should have, I listened to. So I was like, okay, Vanderbilt hard, good. Vanderbilt best, good. And I was very honored to be there. And it was incredible. And I still am very proud of myself for getting into that program. But it never sat right with me. And I was like a nervous anxious wreck about it for months and months and months leading up to it and I didn't understand why like it just I thought it was because it was imposter syndrome and I was nervous Mm -hmm. or whatever but once I got there 
I was there and I actually loved the environment of people there way better. I liked it a lot better than I honestly do um, the other grad school environment that I have here at UGA. I'm still close with and talk to people that I became friends with there. And so that was a lot healthier and that was a better environment. But when it came to like research that I wanted to do, the kind of work mm-hmm. environment I wanted to be in, I just was not in a place that was going to, I could have done it and I would have been fine. Like I could have been a very all in scientist and just spent my hours and labs pipetting and working with mice and being a little bit more all in on science. But I knew once I got there, I was like, no, 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 no. This is not my dream. This is not what I wanted. This is what other people kind of put on mm-hmm. me. And no one did that intentionally to be harmful, but it was definitely something where I like, I had to know myself what I wanted. So I remember at the time at freaking out, but I was like, okay, well, what can I do with just a master's degree? You know what I mean? Like, what can I actually do with just a master's degree? And unfortunately, in exercise physiology, the amount of time you spend on that education doesn't really pay off unless you start your own business, like to be frank. Um, yeah. I was like, okay, great. I'm going to go be an Orange Theory fitness instructor until I'm 50 and die. Like I, that was my really <laughs> dramatic response, which is nothing wrong with that. But like I had bigger aspirations at the time. But I call, I remember I called and asked advice from everyone under the sun, but it wasn't until like basically Regis called me out on not taking any action and just wallowing in self-pity mm. that I realized like I had the choice to take the action myself, but like it was being able to be self-aware enough to recognize that what I was doing did not align with what I wanted to do, my larger career goals, my larger life goals, and what I actually, like what I wanted for myself. Yeah. And so I left. So I left that program. And I know that's a huge privilege. Um, one that I had the support system between Regis and his mom and like really them a lot that really like I moved out of Nashville. I was able to luckily get a a sublease. I moved in with Regis, like his mom moved me. So like there's definitely bigger moving parts in that decision that I had a lot of social support to have. But I had to know myself and what I wanted. And I just took the action and I contacted my now PI and I was like, I'm not happy. I don't want to do this. I want to be an exercise physiologist. Like would you be interested in still taking me on? So I got very, very, very lucky. But the biggest thing with that, I think, is the key is that I was self-aware enough to know what I actually wanted instead of just Mm -hmm. accepting misery as is. And or, I mean, I had not the best experience with one of the professors there who's very mean to me. Um, But there's a lot of abuse that happens with mentors and academia and negative stuff. And like, I think it's really important that sometimes there is financial ties tied up in certain things. And it's a lot of pressure and it's scary. But you know, there are healthy environments or there are environments where you can thrive in because you love what you're doing and that is out there and you have a say in that. But hopefully the rest of this podcast will help you make that decision first and not end up in a situation where I did where I had to leave my first program. Sorry, that was a little long winded, but I really wanted to give like that foreshadowing of how I figured out what work environment works for me, what I actually love doing and how that helped me be self-aware that I was making decisions for other people and not for myself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to like key into those like couple of messages that I think everybody can take away grad school or not. Um, you know, it is what you're doing because you're you're good at it and you're praised for it or because you want it. That's I mean, it really comes down to to that, I think, especially when you have grad students who are really high achieving. Right. You can really get caught up in the wow, people are telling me I'm good at this. Um wow, this is what everybody dreams of, right? Like this program, this prestige, like this is what everybody wants. Um, And then you do that self-reflection and you're like, that gut feeling that you had that a lot of people, you know, and you even said yourself, you ignored it for a little bit. Like you weren't diving in. You had to get called out by Regis. God bless him. (laughs) You know? Only man on earth that can put me in my place. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But that's the, those are the gut feelings, those instincts that we have that a lot of us, 
I mean, we're honestly taught to ignore that feeling that says something isn't right here. I'm not happy in the way that I should be. Right. And I'll, I'll also, you know, God bless if anyone's listening from our department (laughs) when I'm going to share that. I, I mean, I got that feeling when I interviewed here, you know, I got that feeling is like, Oh, I don't, I don't know if this is for me. This was my, my gut feeling was that like UGA and you know, the surrounding area. I think we both said that we don't really love Athens uh, <laughs> as like a place to live. Um, and I just knew that there was, there was a couple of things that weren't my ideal choice. Um, but when you choose schools, there's more to it, obviously, than just uh, your career choice. And so me and Alyssa have a little bit of a different experience with that because I feel like, you know, she got to make that choice and then to go to Vanderbilt and and then to say, you know what, this isn't for me. And you got to put yourself in a better position that made you happier and gave you more fulfilling work. Um, but you know, sometimes when you have families or you have significant others, um, I made the decision to come to Georgia because Peter was going to be in school in Georgia. And we had been long distance for two years, um, when I was in Texas doing my master's and to, to be quite honest, my relationship played a really big decision in where I chose to go to school, because if I had, you know, no qualms about, um, if I, you know, if I had no friends or family or anything to worry about, and I was just making a decision for me, um, I probably would have gone to Pittsburgh and, and worked in a lab with Chris Klein, shout out, he'll never listen to this. Um, (laughs) but, um, you know, (laughs) but, you know, I really had, um, a connection with him and I had a good gut feeling and that was the type of work that I wanted to do. And so sometimes you do kind of make compromises when choosing your graduate school because you can't just choose based on you know your career aspirations alone a lot of the times your personal life seeps into your decision and that's okay um but know that you know th- there's a give and take with that so i i got the blessing of having peter in my life and we got to live together in a camper for two <laughs> a tiny fucking camper for two years um and that was like honestly the best having my best friend by my side again um, but at the same time, I think I compromised a little in terms of the exact type of research that I wanted to do. Um, UGA doesn't have a sleep lab with nurses running protocols for you. So that's something that I had to compromise on. And it it does make it more difficult if you can't work, you know, in the exact way that you wanted to or the exact way that you're passionate about because graduate school is already really hard. Like Alyssa said, sometimes you hate it and you still need that motivation behind it to say, this is really what I want to do. And I know that my work is important. And so it's hard to make compromises like that, but sometimes that's life, right? I mean. Yeah. I will add in before we pivot into application and interview that I think you guys are aware, but Regis also left his master's program and then came back to WKU. And then he left his PhD program at first and then followed me to Georgia, which I was very fortunate. I mean, if Dr. J listens to this shout out, because you are the, (laughs) the, Dr. J is he might be like the the godson of all academic PIs. I'm just very very <laughs> fortunate. Um, he's he's a gem that must be preserved at all cost. Um, but luckily Regis was able to follow me here to UGA, but he got a fellowship through the graduate school, which is the, really the only reason he's here. But keeping in mind that like this isn't just a me thing. I'm not special. But Regis did compromise. He really loved his research at University of Louisville, but he loves me so um he wasn't he didn't love the academics out of it so he was also a little bit more miserable uh, than I was at first too but like those are major decisions like we chose Mm -hmm. to leave together like that was something that we I led that choice because I'm that bullheaded speared woman in my relationship bless his soul um 
But like that wasn't something that like I mean, I was going to Georgia either way. You know what I mean? And like he had to make that decision as well. And we were either going to do distance and it was going to suck or he was going to, you know, he was also miserable. So he was like, oh, well, I'd rather be miserable, but be happy. The Messy Middle Podcast will be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking? In a world full of juice cleanses, detox teas, fancy promises, it can really be hard to trust anything. But high quality supplements, when dosed appropriately, can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I've been using Legion supplements since the beginning of this year, and after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened, and my favorite part, they're fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed by what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge, because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein. Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based. And Recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products. And you can save 20% off your first order today with our code MESSYMIDDLE at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y. M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today. You guys are always asking me, Liz, what the heck do you do on your long runs? And Kate has recently converted me to Audible. With Audible, I'm able to combine my two favorite pastimes, running and learning. If that isn't the most Alyssa thing, I don't know what is. I know, right? So Audible has helped carry me many, many miles with audiobooks and podcasts. And the best thing about it is I'm able to download them directly to my phone and listen to them while I'm offline running through the woods in the middle of nowhere with no cell service. And since I have a reading list approximately as high as I am tall, there's no other way I'd be able to consume so much with how busy I am. That's exactly why I love Audible. I've been a member for years now because I honestly cannot read enough books if I have to sit down to read them all. Audible has been a godsend because I can listen to audiobooks while I'm cooking, working out, or walking my pup Rocky, but my favorite way to use Audible is as I'm going to sleep, and you guys, I recently found out that Audible has bedtime stories narrated by none other than Nick Jonas and Tony Shalhoub, who you may know as the character Monk. Their voices are like so perfectly sultry and like they really guide you off to sleep. It's incredible. So every month, members get one credit to pick any title, no matter the cost, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digest and guided meditation programs, dare I say, by no other than the Pete Diddy himself. If that doesn't scream littlest meditation, I don't know what does. The Audible app is available on all smartphones and tablets, and you can download titles to listen offline anywhere and anytime. You can start listening today with a 30-day trial. You get one title plus two Audible originals for free when you visit audibletrial.com slash middle. That's audibletrial.com slash M-E-S-S-Y-M-I-D-D-L-E. Just I want to key in because that support system is so important. Whether it's a significant other or your family or just having a really solid group of friends that can be there for you. Graduate school can be isolating and lonely. So making a decision for your graduate school because you'll have a better support team at one versus another is totally valid. And honestly, 
even though I might have liked a working style or a research topic at another school, um, maybe more than I like my current studies, having Peter here has been life-saving. I mean, honestly, um, and that might sound dramatic, but you know, we can talk about mental health issues too. Um, but like having that support system is, is so, so important. Yeah. And so let's talk about applying and funding and in all the and application and interviews and all that stuff, because I don't want you guys to think that like, oh, Kate doesn't love her PhD and Alyssa fucked up her first one. So <laughs> I don't think that there was really anything that I had done wrong in my process. So people ask me this all the time. And I actually like I remember feeling very defeated because in the PhD, I don't know how yours was, Kate, but in the PhD mm. application process for me at that point, like I had worked so hard. I'm working on this dream. I'm like, I have really great grades. I have, like, you know what I mean? Like, I can count on one hand how many Bs I've ever had my entire life. I have, yeah. my CV is popping. Like, I did everything textbook right. Like, and I don't, this isn't me being like, oh, I'm awesome and great. Like, that's a cliche thing for, like, graduate yeah. school if you get to that point. Like, you do everything on paper correct. And then I remember sitting there the summer of 2000, I think it was 16, and I started applying to PhD programs, inquiring, and I was really responsible and I was really ahead. So this is the process that I took. I mm -hmm. sat on the Google machine. I know that some of you are so foreign and it's crazy to think to Google something when you don't know how to find the answer. But I'm telling <laughs> you right now, you have all the power in your computer and your fingertips. So quick interjection. There's some personal salt here because you guys be messaging us some stuff that you can Google. So <laughs> I love you guys so much. And we're doing this podcast episode. But there's some things that like I'm not your 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 academic counselor. <laughs> like there's the Google machine has a lot of information. Um yeah. You know, unless you want to pay me to be your academic counselor, then hit me on that Stripe payment. The high ticket. Um, the high ticket Stripe payment. But <laughs> with before I had all these reference, these these social media like things that give you advice and magical Twitter links, Um, I Googled and I had a Word document and a Google page. And I sat there and I looked up every single exercise physiology program in the country. And yep. then I looked at every single research personnel that had anything that and then anything that had anyone that it was remotely close to my research interest, um, which we'll talk about narrowing down in a second, guys. Um, yep. Bear with us. Um, anything that I, at this point, but it's into my master's, I had a rough idea of things that I was interested in doing. And so I took down every exercise physiology, um, nutrition, molecular physiology or bioenergetics program in the country. All those I could have gone to get a graduate degree. in. so I was looking at four different types of programs, four different types of PhDs. Um, and I looked up every single program in the country that offer those. And then I looked up any personnel or PIs of which I would be interested in working with. So like I wouldn't email Kate's current advisor. That would have never made sense for me to have contacted him because I wasn't interested in psychology or any of the stuff that he's doing. So like I was looking up people who were in like looking at like diabetes, um, obesity, metabolism, exercise, weight status, um, metabolic health, like any of that kind of stuff is what I was interested in at the time. And I knew that I was interested in physiology, bioenergetics, energy systems, the things you guys always know that I talk about and really anything that encompassed that and pertaining to human health. Um, and I had narrowed that down throughout my master's. And so I basically emailed every single person in the country and I over and over and over again got 
we don't have funding. We might not have funding. You should apply, but I can't promise I'll be able to take you unless we get this grant, which is very real. And you, I had to weigh the options of applying to those programs and spending that money versus just saying, screw that. You know what I mean? So I had a really hard mm-hmm. time. So I ended up actually only applying to the University of Georgia is the only exercise physiology program I applied to in the country. And I hadn't even inquired at UGA originally until one of my advisors yelled at me because he knew who Jenkins was. And he had been finishing his PhD when Jenkins was in his master's or starting or something like that. And she had known him. And he's like, I don't know why you haven't emailed this guy yet. You, he and him would get along so well, but his bio didn't exactly line up to like what I really thought I wanted to do. Um, and it ended up being that I really clicked with Dr. Jenkins. I mean, obviously I'm getting my PhD under her, him. I am a big fan of Dr. Jenkins. Um, but this was the only program in the country for ex that I applied to because no other PhD program in the country with my research interest had funding or what had happened is, and I really like encourage you guys to do this. I either, I, there's a couple programs that I inquired with and I actually called and talked to their current grad students on the phone and Mm -hmm. asked them about their experience and if they would apply there again and if they would re go there again. And so I did that for a few programs and a couple of them were like straight up like, no, I sure as fuck not. Like I would never come back here. And they would be like, I don't encourage you to apply here. So it might be an amazing lab and a really productive researcher, but the work environment of their students might not be good. So there's a few of those. And I was like, well, I'm not doing that. Like I made that choice for myself. I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that for myself. And so I ended up only applying to UGA. That's the only exercise physiology program in the country, which was really disheartening for me at that point. So that's why I started to look more towards um, integrative physiology type programs where you take, where you come in as a cohort and you do lab rotations, those types of programs, which are very common in like Mm -hmm. physiology and sciences. And so that's why I ended up applying to Vanderbilt um, because I was trying to get into their molecular physiology department because they do have like a metabolism endocrinology Mm -hmm. research sector that's very, very good. Um, And then I applied to the University of Kentucky. And so what I ended up doing was I applied to UGA, wanted to come here. That was up in the air. So I had to pick my second choice, which people are always like Vanderbilt was your second choice and I was like yeah it was I genuinely wanted to come to UGA I genuinely wanted to do human subjects research and I genuinely wanted to work for Dr. Jenkins um and then I ended up never actually going to my UK interview um I had visited both UK UGA and Vanderbilt though before I ever interviewed at them because I was Mm -hmm. a little gung-ho and crazy but I went and I emailed (laughs) professors and I was like hey can I get lunch with you hey can I come meet you hey can I come visit the school and luckily I was in the region where I could drive to the other two um but I really invested a lot of time researching programs um and I still screwed up a little bit you know what I mean but like I I didn't hate Vanderbilt I really didn't I just like I I really did not hate it there I just wasn't a good fit it's an amazing program um but I ended up getting that short end of stick where what I worked so hard to do, there was no funding for, except for UGA and ended up working out because of the way their teaching and research assistantships happened. But that's what I did is I straight up um, emailed, I think I emailed 50 PIs. I emailed I emailed 50 PIs and then I had my list and I would cross things off and narrow it down based off of funding if they were actually even taking students because some of them aren't. And then I ended up, I only applied to three programs and that's, Mm -hmm. that's how I narrowed it down. But it started with a list of 50 that started with the big old Google machine. And that's how I did it. And I know that seems like a lot of work, but it, I mean, at at the end of the day, one of the programs I applied to ended up being the program I'm getting my PhD from. Like I didn't make a horrible, horrible process mistake. (laughs) Yeah. Mine was really similar. Um, I I also want to bring in some of the conversation about my master's because that was a very different application process than my PhD. And I do think that um, one of the, the common things that happens during a master's is you apply to a program and you don't apply to a person. Like a lot of programs, uh, you work directly with a PI, even in your master's. Um, But I think 
I actually just like fortunately found my PI in my master's. Um, but I just applied to the program instead mm-hmm. of uh, asking to work with an individual directly. So that is the experience in a lot of master's programs. But I do think you get a leg up if you are like specifically emailing the person you want to work with. And I do think that not only does that put you in a better position to get accepted to the schools that you want, but it gives you a better insight into who that person is and if working with them is going to be a good experience for you. Um, so for my master's, um, I think we we talked about this briefly in my episode, but essentially I had a lot of imposter syndrome, um, even though I, I graduated summa cum laude and uh, like just was had a crush ass like CV and all of this stuff, I still was terrified that I wasn't going to get accepted or I wasn't going to get the funding that I wanted. So I did the same type of thing during my master's is where I looked at every single sports psychology program in the entire country and narrowed it down to places that a, I would, I would go to. So, um, you know, there are some places out in like Colorado where I was like, "Mm, I don't know if I want to be that far from friends and family. And again, I had a relationship, me and Peter have been together for since undergrad. So, um, I chose University of North Texas for my master's degree because, um, A, they were the first one to reach out with an assistantship. And that made me feel like solidified that, um, okay, great. I have at least one program fully funded that is going to accept me. And um, UNT was actually my first choice because they had a sports psychology practicum where you could work hands-on with athletes and uh, do the type of work that I thought I wanted to do. So I think that that's really important when you are looking at choosing schools, especially if, like we said, there's a lot of different styles of graduate school. Not all of them are research-based. Some of them are hands-on and practical. So if you have one of those hands-on practical types of schools that you're applying to, looking at the experience of, you know, either the clinical rotations or the experience of um, the internships or what have you, that's really important for me, for, for people working in um, application-based you know, programs. So that was my idea was that, okay, I wanted to work hands-on. I didn't necessarily have the dream of being in the lab at that time. So I chose a school that had that for me. And when I moved to Texas and I started the internship, I, I actually quickly realized that I preferred the lab. I liked working in the lab more than I did, um, in that hands-on, uh, space in sports psychology. And I also, um, just respectfully believe that you should be a full-blown psychologist uh, when working with athletes on psychological skills, because I think it goes deeper than that. So um, when I went to my master's, I was just really fortunately happenstance. My advisor arrived um, when I arrived in that fall, or maybe he came in the summer before. And so um, with the sports psychology uh, program there, they basically assigned you an advisor and you could switch, um, if you felt, but basically there were two, um, instructors that you could work with if you were going to do a thesis track. I mean, everyone was assigned an advisor, but if you were going to do a thesis track, you know, of course you're going to work a lot closer with that individual, um, than if you were just going through a non-thesis, uh, testing out, or if you have like an internship or something that, uh, you know, completes your degree. So, I just got lucky that I found somebody who was um, fresh out of their PhD, was really um, an exceptional mentor because he wanted to, you know, be be the person that would help, you know, bright young minds figure out what they wanted to do in life. And so I got fortunate by happenstance and that was a lot of luck. But I think, you know, if I were to go back, I wouldn't change my experience at all. But if I were to go back um, or tell a younger version of myself, 
I would make sure that I look into who I would be working with specifically. And so during my PhD process, that's what I did. I made sure that I was going to be applying to schools um, and working with an advisor that I thought would not only um, be like a kind person, because in academia, there's a lot of advisors, unfortunately, that you don't have a good mentor-mentee relationship with. And I wanted to make sure that I at least had a good experience like I did at UNT uh, with genuinely liking my advisor and feeling like they had my back instead of um, you know, just wanting to push me through a program. So when I applied, I only applied to two schools. Um, and I actually, for what I wanted to do at that point, I wanted to do sleep and research. So I actually looked at all of the R1 universities. I got a list of the R1 universities because I like really just wanted to be knees deep in a lab. Um, and so I looked for all of the R1 universities that would be a more heavy research emphasis. And then I had a phone interview uh, before I even applied. I uh, sent an email to Chris Klein to talk on the phone. And then I sent an email to O'Connor, my current advisor. And we, because I lived in Georgia, were able to meet um, in person at the university because I, I live, my family's home lives pretty close. So I think I did that over Christmas break or something. I was able to just come and meet him. So I actually met um, or talked with both of my potential PIs before I even applied um, to the school. So, and I also think uh, some schools have a lot of application fees. And when we're talking about being financially um, responsible or like, you know, being mindful of your finances, the more schools you apply to, the more fees you rack up because um, you're sending your GRE scores. You're also paying the application fee for each individual school. So for me, um, I was also trying to be considerate of like, okay, during my master's, I spent so much money applying to like eight different schools. <laughs> so this time around, I'm going to really narrow it down before I even, you know, do the application. And so that's what I did is I ended up applying to both of those schools um, and was accepted uh, while I was in the interview process at uh, Pitt. And at that point I accepted at UGA, so I didn't have to go through the rest of that process. Um, but I think I was fortunate, like Alyssa said, she was looking for funding and couldn't find it. I was fortunate that uh, the programs that I was interested in were uh, schools that had a lot of availability, I felt like, or a lot of options for different, not only research assistantships, but teaching assistantships, grants uh, that you could work on to be funded. So I felt like I had a lot of options, but that's not the case for a lot of people. And finding funding can be a really big deal, um, especially in your PhD, because that's a longer process than your master's and you can accumulate debt. And there's some programs that don't even offer funding at all, like uh, a lot of physical therapy programs don't. So I think it's important to just a few things for those of you. Sometimes you apply to master's programs that aren't PhD bound or thesis track, and you probably will have to pay for those out of pocket. So that is a bigger decision on if whether or not that's what you want to do. And you won't really look at PIs. You're just going to look at programs and probably like the quality of the academics and the mm -hmm. career outcomes of those people. So you'll probably look a little bit more at that. And um, the coursework. And, and, yeah. and the coursework and stuff like that. And see if it aligns. Because like we have a master's exercise physiology strength and conditioning program that like strong like Shelby has gone through. And she's super smart. But she didn't do thesis track. But she paid for her master's. Versus mm -hmm. like my master's was free because I worked in it. And I would also encourage you to... Um, if you can get funding, get funding. Like, don't just think about even if you only have a um, teaching assistantships and research assistantships are common. But I also applied for funding in my master's in like the rec center. You mm -hmm. can just apply for it on like campus wide jobs. So like, don't just say, oh, well, I don't there's no funding like for your Ph.D. Get research or teaching funding if you're doing science like that's yeah. like a non-negotiable. Um, 
some other PhDs, they it's hit or miss if it's like more of like the soft sciences, I guess, social sciences. They don't always have as much funding. Um, but keeping that in mind, also, when you're looking at PIs and you're looking at funding, you're going to either be funded by the program to teach or you're going to be funded by a grant to do research. And that is very different. I was funded both in my master's and both in my PhD. And being funded to teach means your paycheck is driven by the fact that you also teach classes on top of the other work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And if you apply for some of these bigger programs like Vanderbilt, I would have never taught unless I, I like sought it out myself. I was 100% funded under grant funding or funding right. from the school. Um, where at UGA, we don't really even have grants for research in our lab that like I've mm -hmm. had to seek out all my grant funding. And so I'm 100% supported by my teaching or I got funding for myself one year. So you really like when you talk to PIs, find a PI you like, find a PI whose personality and work style and talk to their graduate students, but also figure out what the funding situation is, how long you'll be funded on certain things, and if you're going to have to teach versus research, because that's no. also an important decision that you can make for yourself too, because you know some people want teaching experience, some people just want to go all in on research. So also ask where that money is coming from um, and how long it will last and how much it is and if that's stable, like this, especially with grants. Um, but then if you're working with like general programs or you're just a TA assistantship, just making sure that you're, you will, you generally sign a contract every year kind of yeah. thing. Um, yeah. But making sure that that's not something they can just drop on you. Like, don't be afraid to interview the schools and interview the PIs that you're working for. Like, ask these questions, no. get the answers. Yeah, it's an honor to get in these programs, but also like these programs run off of our work. Like, these programs want good students. So if you're a good student and you deserve to be there, which don't let imposter syndrome tell you you don't, if you are a good student, you know on paper if you're a good student and logically. Um, and don't be afraid to ask them and challenge things back to make sure that you're making the best decision for yourself or like for your life. Yeah. And if you don't know who your PI is going to be, if you're in maybe a master's program or you're still looking, um, emailing the graduate coordinator, the graduate director, whoever that is, they should be listed as that title on the like faculty list. Those are the people that are going to have the information that you need in terms of like, what are my funding options? Because sometimes the websites don't make it easy for you to find. And also if trust, it's a grant. Just assume the websites don't have all the information. Right. Exactly. Trust, um, assume they don't. Talk to a person. Yeah, because um, some, sometimes, too, you'll get funded through a grant, but it wasn't even available or advertised anywhere. It was something that somebody just knew of and you ended up applying through a weird backdoor scenario for. So um, definitely don't assume that your options are the only ones listed on the website. So make sure you reach out and say, OK, what do you have in terms of assistantships, scholarships, grants? Those are your three big ticket words. Yeah. So we, we kind of ranted and raved about the stuff. This is definitely carrying on a little bit longer. But yeah, we're going to so make this much, a two-parter. <laughs> yeah. There's so much information that considerations that go into this. This is why when you guys ask us like quick response questions on Instagram, we're like, uh, like there's so much more to it. Right. Yeah. And so then you're going to you're going to get into your graduate school, your PhD. And we're going to probably talk more through the PhD lens right now, because generally, if you're a master's student, you're two years and you're either funded to do research and you're going to do some thesis and they're going to tell you exactly what to do. And you're going to just be told what you're going to do. Um, <laughs> Not always, be, but a lot of the time, like for the most part, they're going to you'll have maybe a say, but for the most part, you're you're not as autonomous as you think you are yet. Sure. <laughs> um, but like generally, you're going to go into your lab. And they're going to have a general direction of a project that you're going to be given and or you're going to be funded under something that's already going on. You're going to get a piece of it. And that's not uncommon either in PhDs. If you're funded under a big grant, you're you're doing what that grant's telling you you're going to do. Um, mm -hmm. So that 
dictates a lot of the time what you're going to research. Um, the niche is something that you pick by the lab or PI you're in. Um, but then things can change throughout your graduate's career and or you can also apply for funding for yourself um, through either internal grants or external grants or mm-hmm. if you have a big enough school and enough support from your PI, you can apply for like national level grants. And so once you're in that, looking and seeking out those opportunities to making sure that you're funded and or um, you can even get money just to support your own research. And so I'm yeah. a lab that like we don't have big grants. So we're doing all of our research on zero dollars and any money that I have to support my PhD, I've had to seek out and apply for myself on my mm-hmm. own because I came up with my own project. I'm not so there's there's pros to that, right? Like I am fully autonomous in my research and study design with being helped by like my mentors um and committee members. But like we had zero dollars. So I basically was like Dr. Jenkins was like come up with whatever you want to do. But like we refined it, but he's like, we can do whatever you want as long as it fits into this. Mm-hmm. to our like to our research methods and style um but granted like if we like we're applying for a grant right now if we get that next semester I have to do that project I don't have any say on what I'm doing kind of thing so it really that also dictates your autonomy and your research De- funding does funding can dictate what you're going to do yeah for sure yeah and I think that um that's a good segue into like how your first year in a master's or PhD program uh differs like your earlier work versus when you transition to a lot more research emphasis if you are a thesis or dissertation um, student. So like when you first arrive, a lot of it, your focus is on coursework. And I think me and Alyssa now have been out of that for a moment here. So it's easy for us to talk all day about uh, the stuff that we're currently doing. But when you first arrive at a PhD, a lot of the emphasis is on just learning and retaining as much knowledge as you can. Um, And that comes with like organizing yourself in terms of, okay, I've got all this coursework to do. I also might be teaching. I might be doing research. Um, I might be trying to develop my own projects or working on a grant. Um, And I've also got to learn all of this knowledge from these really heavy course courses on topics that maybe are completely foreign to me, like statistics like how much statistics knowledge did you have before you arrived to your program um you know so I think how how I guess the question is how do we shape uh those first and second years of a PhD um before you really move into focusing on your dissertation and that one big project that's going to get you out of there so what does that look like for you Alyssa in terms of like organizing yourself um and how your working style was then compared to now yeah. So I will say, too, for those of you who are doing this, everything is very different across the whole way. Undergrad is so different from graduate school because you go from being a student to doing a bunch of things all over the place that you're not mm-hmm. focused on one niche. And then your master's is your niche down, but it's like twice as much coursework and actual work as undergrad. It's like it all comes together. There's no good transition. They just kind of like throw you into the deep end. You're like, <laughs> here you go. 60 hour weeks. You don't know what you're doing with your life. Like, don't drink too much coffee. Don't die. Here you go. And I had a good program, right? Like I had good support. But like that's you yeah. kind of like switch into that immediately where it's really crazy. And you're doing a lot of coursework and you're trying to do research. So I would say I was almost like more hectic in my master's. And that's a lot of what your first probably two years of your PhD is as well. Because you're still taking classes. And like I was teaching at that point in time too. And I had never taught before. So I was like transitioning to teaching. You're taking classes, but then you're also trying to get your research started up and running and like doing this all while still you're still a student but then you're expected to have like I mean I did research in my master's so I definitely had that experience but I didn't take classes that last little chunk of my master's where I was doing it so it really wasn't too bad um I had a 
my program was set up very cool. But, you know, you're in a full load of classes. You're teaching a few classes, but then you're expected to start getting your research up and running. And then that's kind of like that first two years is like it's classes are cool and you like learning, but then it's also like schoolwork almost becomes inconvenient because it's getting in the way of your research. But you can't you have to prioritize both. Now, most people say you can kind of like let your grades slack in your PhD and grad school and no one actually But nobody cares. feels that way. But no, you don't <laughs> no actually feel that actually way. actually feels like you can let it go, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. my advisor basically has told me repeatedly that it's okay if I didn't get good grades as long as like I was understanding content and getting my research done, but mm-hmm. I'm a psycho. So I yeah, well, one. Yeah. That's a good point though to make though, is that a lot of students, because you're such high achievers and you've been um, especially up until your PhD, striving to make good enough grades in undergrad to be considered for your graduate, your master's program, and then maintaining like a 4.0 in your master's because you're too scared to do anything less than because you want to go on to a PhD. And when you arrive at your PhD, literally no one gives a shit about your grades at all. Right. But you're still in that mentality of working, working, working to be perfect on paper that you, you kind of, forget um and like some people rationalize that it's like oh well this is for my postdoc or my next job or whatever um but it but people you, they care way more about your research people care way more about your research right i mean than anything. of course depending yeah. on like what type of program that you're in but um yeah. you know our experience has definitely been that what you do is more important than um how well you test <laughs> yeah and i've been told that repeatedly i mean i was told that at vanderbilt they were like don't fail but like it's fine if you don't get a four out like your mm-hmm. research and that is gonna be that is your career if you stay in academia like your research is your career but that's also like where you get publications and like don't fail out of school but like me getting a b in a class would have not been in the end of the world where in my undergrad i would like panic and think i was gonna fail out of life um so you're still just kind of chugging along as a student like you're still like in student mode you're still in classes you're still studying dealing with classmates group projects you're teaching and then you just slowly start to transition like out of that and mm-hmm. you do start to feel that where you're like done with classes like I still like learning but you're like okay like I you're so self-taught and so self-driven at that point that your knowledge yeah. isn't really coming from coursework and so I took a lot of really good courses in my PhD honestly like I learned a ton I loved having them mm-hmm. but you realize that like you don't need that's that not the structure. only way to learn yeah yeah you don't need that structure and you're kind of over it like you want to and you so you kind of transition the whole comps year to um become a, a candidate thing is where you take that transition from like student to like young professional like you're basically yeah. like uh more of that's more of your job you're more of a colleague like you're more so like on that tail end of your phd and i just kate's about to go through this transition i just went through this transition i feel like a whole new bitch um getting through comps was a huge thing for me mentally and emotionally yeah but i could you just like feel like you're you know you feel like you're never learning anything or you don't understand anything and then all of a sudden you start studying for your comps and connecting all these things and applying all this stuff and you feel like all the education that you had from all those years is suddenly coming together like you actually feel like you understand something for the first time in forever well at the time it's very daunting but yeah, I think a lot of the time in the beginning, you're so focused on just keeping everything, like all your balls in the air, right? Because you're juggling with teaching research, taking your own coursework, whatever it may be. And so a lot of the emphasis is on just trying to stay afloat. But when you finally get that freedom to start drawing connections between your coursework and your projects and the application and what you've actually learned, that becomes a really eye-opening moment because you're able to like step out of the panic go 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 mode and really like take a moment to reflect on everything and realize that you have accumulated a lot of knowledge and you have the smarts to put 
you know, a research idea together that's independent, you know? Yeah. yeah. I feel like year one, you're still kind of like swimming on your own in the in, with the floaties. You know what I mean? Like you're not fully autonomous. You still really don't know what's doing. You're taking classes. You're 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 trying to get your research started, but you're a little like generally gradually. Like I feel like I become less and less reliant on Dr. Jenkins every year, which is the point, right? Like the yeah. idea is mm-hmm. to like eventually like be able to. I mean, your dissertation is especially is essentially you figuring out how to figure out shit on your own, right? Like you have your yeah. committee and they're helping you, but it was like I didn't really know what I was doing and I felt so confused and I was pushing and I'm pretty stubborn. I figured it out and I brought like a method into our lab and like it's not like I just was like I didn't need handheld but that was like a big drastic shock for me is like mm-hmm. how much less I mean my PI is very hands-off and so I had to really trust myself a lot of that but then year two was the hardest for me I think also because I was doing I was trying to be like a full-time researcher while also teaching and also being a student and it was a little bit too <laughs> too much oh also yeah. casually doing my business in there too I really burn out that was not healthy um yep. you guys have heard about that in the me and Kate's meeting slash my podcast and the intro and all that stuff mm-hmm. but I really burnt myself out there because I was trying to compensate on my research and also still be a full-time teaching assistant and also be in classes. And it was a lot. Um, So I think that was probably my hardest year because I was just, I could feel. Then I ended up getting a research assistantship for that last year that bought Mm -hmm. me out of teaching. And so that was really, really big for me. So last fall until really the spring, things started to get a lot better because I was able to just focus on my work and my research. And then I started studying for comps and applying for grants. And I felt like I finally started to have those moments at the end of year two, beginning of year three, um, because I started in January for those who need timeline. Um, we're like for the first time in years, like literally been in school for nine years that I was like, okay, things actually click. I'm actually doing things right. I'm actually not bad at this. Like things like everything that you feel like you're never doing anything and you're not productive and you're a big failure and you're always falling behind. Like all of a sudden I was like, okay, wow, I have been doing things and moving the ball forward. And it's like, you almost like look down from the mountain and see how far you've been climbing. Yeah. Um, and so I finally started to have those moments and then you transition. Like I had comps. Um, I had like, I was auditing a class this spring. So that was like not any work. So all I was doing is comps and research and data analysis. I mean, the pandem- pandemic hit and then I just like wrote my manuscript and that was a shit show on its own, but it felt started to feel way more like a job. So I felt like like mm-hmm. it's my actual job. I schedule my work, I get my shit done. And then it's not that stress of like, oh fuck, I have to study. Oh shit. I have this homework assignment. Like you can right. just work and work when you work and be done. Like there's a lot, it's a lot easier to draw your boundaries with work when you also don't have to do classes. You know what I mean? Like yeah. instead of that always being filled in. So there's a lot, it becomes more of like a normal adult job at that point in time. Like you're a little bit older, especially if, unless you're non-traditional, but you're like, you're older now. You're not like 22 years old anymore more you're an adult you have like a little bit more you like of a system in your life and so things kind of do slow down in a good way like school gets harder but you're better at it um it becomes more of like an actual normal job you have more structure in your life you're not a really confused like you know fresh out the womb undergrad and so it does get better like I would say like socially and emotionally and like psychologically because you kind of it's and it's its own type of hard like obviously like comps and proposal and stuff is hard but at that point in time you know your stuff better than anyone else there and you have to believe that and so you're just becoming an expert at your niche and that's your only job at that point in time we are going to leave off here for today's episode in part two we are going to discuss some of the practical ways that we manage all of these responsibilities as a grad student as well as how to narrow down your research topic pick your committee members take constructive feedback and protect your mental health. 
Until then, we want you to live well, demand better, and stay messy.